Well, let me officially say good morning again to you this morning. Um, and I just want to sort of echo the sentiment that Wendell mentioned a moment ago. Uh, super apologetic for some of the tech difficulties we've had this morning, but very thankful that our team was able to remedy that uh, rather quickly. So uh, there's always a risk when you use technology. And I hope that you uh, will continue to be able to worship with us now as we move towards our time of teaching. And this is an important time of teaching, especially for what's probably going to be about a, a month or so. That's what I'm thinking, this sort of block of truth that I want to share with you. It's what I want to call a bit of a, a compilation of, of what the scripture has to say about suffering. And let me explain what I mean by that. If you have been with us at any, any amount of time at Restoration, you know that difficult subjects like this are things that we don't necessarily shy away from. The Bible has a lot to say about ideas, for example, today's suffering. And whenever there is truth in the Bible, even if it's difficult to hear or to understand, we want to be faithful to the truth of the scripture and communicate these things. And so over the roughly 10 years that Restoration has been in existence, you know, flourishing as, as one of Christ's church here on earth, we have talked about suffering here and there. And what I wanted to do was sort of take the, the breadth of that teaching and, and put together in a little bit of a mini-series, a rather timely one, I would say, uh, a little mini-series on suffering. And I want to open this by saying that um, there are several teachings I want to do here. So it is very likely that after today's teaching, you'll have a question or two that maybe wasn't addressed in today's teaching. So I want to encourage you to tune in, in the weeks that follow. I'm going to try to cover all of the major ground that we usually think about when it comes to suffering. But I also want to encourage you, whether it's uh, messaging the office or emailing us or commenting, whatever, if there are certain things that maybe are of particular interest to you when it comes to to how we as believers function in a world where there is no shortage of suffering, please make sure to submit that stuff because I'd love to be able to do my best to address whatever I can that maybe I'm not intending on uh, teaching on. And so all that said, I, I, I'm going to be teaching today, but I want you to feel like this is the beginning of a, of a dialogue between you and I, our church and you, on the reality of suffering. And if you look around, I would say that as, as believers, uh, our our voice in this, the world demands that we as followers right now, followers of Christ, think about this, especially if we're going to move beyond just the reality of enduring hardship and helping others to deal with it through these times. And that's why we're looking at these verses from the Apostle Paul in Philippians today. And what we read in the book of Philippians is interesting because Paul is enduring a very real hardship in life. Uh, there's no theory in what he's writing about in these verses. It has been just the summation of what's gone on up until this point in Philippians. He has been wrongfully imprisoned for uh, essentially sh sharing the gospel. So there's a deep irony in this that he's, he's in trouble because of his fidelity to the work of Jesus Christ. And his response is real evidence that God's people can have joy in the most challenging of circumstances. Remember, when we, whenever we speak about joy, the promises of the gospel, peace and, and hope, we always make the point that these, these ideas, these truths transcend circumstances. If you seek joy from circumstances, what will happen is at some point those circumstances will let you down and rob you of your joy. If you find joy in Jesus, meaning he is the rudder of your heart, then what happens is you're able to, even when circumstances are not easy, you're able to be joyful during them. And by joyful, I don't mean necessarily 
happy. I'm not encouraging you to have some kind of false bravado when it comes to this. I am merely saying that there is an, there is an inner peace, an inner confidence, an inner joy that God can give us to not only endure through the hardships of life, but to persevere through them. And equally as important to recognize that we are responsible for caring for our neighbors during times like this. And so this, this enduring spirit and positive Christ-like attitude that we see all throughout the Bible, but particularly here in Paul's writings, this is what I want to talk about over these next weeks. So remember, phone in your questions, email, text, whatever. If there's stuff you want to particularly talk about, I'd love to be able to address some of those things. But today we're going to begin looking at Paul's situation while he's sitting in a jail cell. We're going to examine his words and jump right in to look at this main truth that this passage shows us. This truth is a hard reality about life, but it is a true reality about life. And so we're going to hit it head on and, and not deny it. And the short story is this. Is if we're to be totally honest, life can and will be hard at times. And I want to say that again. If we're going to be totally honest, life can and will be hard at times. And that's what we just read in Philippians 1, 12 through 14. And this is in sharp contrast to, to some of the worldviews that some people have today about the role of, of challenge or trial or hardship or suffering in Christianity. Today there are some Christians that believe that the main evidence, perhaps, of God's love for you in this life is that all of your problems go away. Uh, we might not say this as acutely or as, as pointed as I've just said it, but it's kind of interesting that, that at times we as believers sort of function as if God is a cosmic like slot machine and we expect to put something in and get an equivalent return out of that. And oftentimes this happens, or the way we sort of perceive this is in the way our lives are going. And so it's very common to hear Christians think that when their life is going well, they believe God's favor is, is upon them. But when things are difficult, maybe they feel like God's favor is, is not upon them. And it's kind of interesting, those those beliefs which are sort of steeped in you know, Christian language are, are more common to other faiths that we don't necessarily even agree with. Like what I would say is when it comes to suffering and hardship and trial, you have a lot of people that profess a faith in Jesus Christ but live their life as if this you know, inanimate thing called karma is, is a real thing. And so I want to sort of level the playing ground today to say that just because life can be difficult, that in no way affects or is even an evidence of the love that God does have for you. And so a passage like this shows us that believing this, when my life is good and I feel happy, God loves me, when I don't uh, have the circumstances in life I want right now, this is an evidence of God not being happy with me. We want to sort of throw that statement out the window. We want to make sure that we have a... a more of an informed understanding of, of how God's love works in our lives and how it can sustain us through trial. And the way you can tell if somebody believes, like I just said, the kind of cosmic slot machine idea, is when hard times come in their life. They'll respond oftentimes by saying things like, well, how, how could God like let this happen to me? Or, or why would he make this happen to me? That's another thing we hear. People will often take something that's going on in their life and they'll automatically blame God as if God sort of sits on his throne, you know, throwing trials into our lives because he doesn't care for us. And so statements like this, which are definitely worth discussing, that's what we're going to be doing over these next weeks. The one thing I want to point out at the beginning of this is that they often carry in them a negative assumption about the character and the nature of our God. In other words, if, if the first thought you and I have when our lives get a little bit difficult is, why is God doing this to me? Or why does God not love me? What's subtly happening is, is we, we really do doubt the goodness 
of our God because we automatically attribute all the negativity and the challenges and the trials to him. We automatically assume that hardship is, uh, is an evidence of God's dislike of us maybe. And we have to make sure that when it comes to trial and hardship, before we accuse God of wrongdoing, that we have a proper understanding of what God's role is and isn't in these things. And that's really what we're going to be kicking around over these next weeks. And if we don't, what will happen is we'll likely develop a, a faith crisis. And I want you to know, if, if you have been with Restoration for any amount of time, you know that we actually believe crises of faith are essential to growing in faith. The only way you really prosper in, in your growth in Jesus oftentimes comes through very difficult life situations and very challenging questions. And so a faith crisis in and of itself, in other words, like why, why am I unable to work right now? Or why are there over 50,000 people who have passed away from the COVID illness? These, these questions oftentimes, when we frame them in the correct perspective, they can help us to understand things about God and his love for us in more deep and significant ways. They might even help us to recognize in places where we believe God is cruel and unjust that that's actually not the case, that the challenge with how we see God is in some form of unhealthy expectation and what we think God should be doing in our lives. And this incongruency is, is actually what I want to talk about. If we believe that God is, or we expect something of God, let me put it this way, in our lives that he doesn't give us, and maybe the expectation is more what we want, rather than what he has promised us, what happens is, is you, you have the foundations, uh, you're setting the foundations of a potentially problematic relationship. And when it comes to our followership of Jesus, we would call this a, a true faith crisis. Because just like any other relationship that you or I have in life, whether it's friends or families or children, whatever it is, when we have unrealistic expectations or maybe even false expectations, like straight up wrong expectations that we apply to people's lives, it's, it's bound to stress the relationship. And what ends up happening is, is we, we struggle not even necessarily because we've got the question answered the way we wanted it, we struggle because we expect from someone or something, something that that something cannot provide us. Meaning we look to a circumstance in life to sustain us permanently, in this case, we could probably rightly say stability is the circumstance that has been most challenged on the globe or around the globe due to the fact that this illness is still circulating. And I want to share with you, this is certainly not the only time that this has been a, a faith challenge for me, but this is when it came full circle for me. I shared this a few years ago in Restoration when we were physically meeting, and I want to share it with you again, especially if you're, you're tuning in and you've actually never worshipped with us before. One of the things we really value at our church is, is transparency and relationship, and so when we are talking about things like this, I am not talking at you about these things. Uh, I am a participant in these same struggles. And the first time this struggle, understanding like a good God in a, in a difficult world, the first time this came full circle for me was just before going on my first overseas uh, mission trip, which was to the northern part of Brazil. And I was a very new Christian at the time, a little less than a year I had known Christ, and I was very nervous about my first time leaving the country, which is interesting because generally speaking, I have a, a pretty adventurous spirit, but the thought of being in a plane, flying over oceans uh, to another part of the world that I had never seen before was, was definitely stressing me. 
And so the night before I left, a group of friends, Christians, said, hey, uh, we'd like to pray for you and your safety and the work you're going to be doing in Brazil. And I was all for prayer. So I, I accepted their gracious offer, thinking like, of course, what we should do is, is pray. I mean, if I'm nervous, then we should pray that God will help me to not be nervous. So whatever it is my challenges were, I was just thankful for somebody to pray for me. And so we got together in this group in somebody's living room, and for about 20 minutes, everyone but me prayed. They, they prayed over me, you might say. And when they had stopped, immediately after we stopped, someone in the group had turned to me and looked at me, and they said, well, you must, you must feel better now, right? How do, you feel, do you feel better? In other words, they were asking me, we just prayed for you, like all the struggles, all the challenges, all the fears, all that stuff gone. And I said, always being one who values sort of candor and speech, I said, well, I deeply appreciate the prayers, but the truth is, like, I'm, I'm still nervous, like really nervous. Like, I, I wish I could tell you that what you just prayed sort of like turned the light switch off. And, and I was like, you know, ready to go change the world. But the truth was, I had no less, no, no, no less an amount of nervousness in my life at that moment than I did before they prayed for me. And so in a further attempt to try to comfort me, and I, I'm not knocking this response. This was somebody genuinely trying to care for me. This person said, listen, you don't have anything to worry about. Because, and this was the literal quote, because I am a Christian and because I'm going to do good things in the name of God, God would never let anything bad happen to me, especially while trying to do good things for God. And I, I heard that and, and it made perfect sense. And my questions were answered. Like my fear went away. I was like, Man, this is amazing. Like, of course, like I love Jesus and Jesus loves me. I've read that promise a million times, and I'm going to go do good things in the name of Jesus. So, so really, I'm going to be immune to trial or hardship. And, you know, I got like a little bit arrogant in my head. I was thinking like, I'm going to, I don't even need the plane to get to Brazil. I'll just fly down there on my own like Superman. And when I'll get there, I'm going to single-handedly be able to like lift cars with my left hand and lead people to Jesus with my right hand and baptize them. And I was like stoked and ready to go. And for a moment, and I mean a brief moment, like all was well in my soul. And then I felt compelled to look to my right, where one of the persons who was also in this group praying for me, this was actually uh, the person who had helped me find Jesus, incredibly influential in my life, someone I would consider a deeply mature Christian. Uh, they were just subtly looking at me and shaking their head like this. It was a bit of a code that he was giving me, saying like, that's, that's not exactly how it works. Uh, you can do good things in the name of God and actually endure very difficult circumstances. And so after the group dispersed, he and I chatted for several hours that night. And I, for the first time in my life, was confronted with the reality that we're talking about today. How is it that, that good, in, in, good, bad things can happen sometimes to people we might deem good or to, to our lives? Like, why does this even happen? Why is suffering a reality in this world? And he was right in pointing out to me that the, the reality of, of trial or hardship in our life is not an evidence of, of the lack of God's love for us. And as I grew closer to Jesus, more often than not, I learned the firsthand reality of this truth. And I have been subjected to many a conversation with people about this. This is a, a major theme. It's one of the most common questions, whether you're in Christianity or not, that, that people have. They want to know why bad things happen in our world. And the reality is, even for those in Jesus, it is pretty normal for people who love God and are even doing really good things for him to suffer and endure trial. I'm not trying to be like hyper-pessimistic here. I'm just saying if you've spent any time walking the terra firma of this earth, 
you know that life can be difficult and oftentimes is difficult. We, you know, use our own little like made up proverbs like some days we're in the mountaintop, others are in the valley. The reality is suffering and hardship and trial is a normal circumstance when it comes to humanity in general. And if we as Christians in particular don't understand how God can and will use these things for good in our lives, if we automatically want to cast blame or we want to even maybe do the opposite of what I said earlier, we want to decide whether or not we love God, whether or not our circumstances are good or bad. All of this creates a problematic understanding of how we follow Jesus, how we understand his love for us, and certainly how we serve our neighbors. What ends up happening is, is we are likely to grow very hard and callous towards God when the trials do come. Like James says in his epistle, we have other scriptures, which we'll look at in the weeks that follow, that tell us to be prepared for trial because nobody escapes it. Not even Jesus. We celebrated this two weeks ago. I mean, the greatest evidence of somebody doing great things for the kingdom of God in the name of God and having something horrific happen to him is Jesus Christ. He sort of is the, the stellar example we have of the fact of somebody who literally did do everything right, yet for some cause and purpose beyond himself, he endured hardship and trial. And we know that that, is the, that was for the goodness of, of, of humanity, for the redemption of the world. And so what I want to do today is spend a couple of minutes just looking at some examples of how God uses suffering in the lives of people to help them love and grow in Jesus more deeply. And keep in mind, I'm not saying, this, this is something we're going to deal with <clears throat> in more detail in a couple of weeks. I don't want you to hear me saying that God is the cause of every aspect of this suffering. That's not what I'm saying. What I want to look at today is the fact that God can bring very good things out of very bad situations. And so we'll look at three situations, three circumstances, very briefly. The first is John the Baptist. Now think about this. If you've read any of the Bible, you know John the Baptist is one of the most committed followers of God. So much so that God chose him to be like the prophetic forerunner for Jesus. Like, he was the voice calling out in the wilderness. He was the voice like preparing the way for the fact that, that Jesus had, had come. And there's a deep irony in that. You have this guy who is by all standards an exemplary follower of God. It is actually his fidelity to God's kingdom and the purposes of God that is the ultimate reason his life is taken from him. In other words, it was his faithfulness to Jesus that cost him his, his life. And there's an irony in that, because in our world, we don't like statements like that. You know, the idea of the American dream is if I put my 40 hours in, that I'll get 50 hours of, of residual payback, and my life will just continue to progress up and up and up. But that's not always the story of life naturally, and certainly not the story of a great many men and women in the Scripture. Yet despite this, we know that John the Baptist held a very special place in God's heart and in Jesus' heart. He ushered in the era of Christianity, the era of Jesus that we live in now. And his suffering, no doubt, was terrible. But ultimately, God meant and used every single aspect of that circumstance for his life, for his good. And John literally becomes the forerunner of Jesus because of it. In other words, a very terrible situation brings about a very good thing in the world. Jesus is here. John's prophetic words bring Jesus to earth. They usher in the, com the coming of that kingdom. Yet he endures incredible hardship. Let me give you another example. This one is probably going to be a little more, 
maybe a motive as far as the way that it connects with our heart. Maybe some of you have found yourself in a situation like this. In John chapter 4, we read this story about the Samaritan woman at the well. This is another form of, of hardship, okay? Here's a woman who's harshly judged by her culture for two main reasons. One, she's considered ethnically inferior. What we can rightly apply to this term is that she is, she is judged racially in her world. And she is deemed moral failure because of her involvement with a series of men. She, she's deemed, according to this passage, and what we know about the culture in that world at that time, she is deemed a societal outcast, a marginalized, uncared for, unclean, unpure person. And she is treated like that. Wherever she goes, scorn and shame follows. And that is a kind of hardship in its own right. It, it's a social oppression, you can say, that is a true trial. It's a real hardship. To not have a place to lay your head and call home, to not have a place of, of comfort and security and stability, uh, these things really challenge the human mind and the human heart. Yet it is the same hardships that Jesus uses to shepherd her heart to his perfect acceptance and love. What I mean by this is Jesus did not condone the behavior that others showed her, but he comes and he cuts the nut. He cuts right into the middle of this. And he takes that very suffering and he turns it in such a way that she understands how a God of grace and redemption can love her. How, how somebody can be loved like that. Because Jesus in the same way is a societal outcast. Think about this. He is speaking from his own personal experience. He too is harshly judged by his culture. He too has no real place to lay his head and call home. Literally the Bible tells us that. Both of them, eventually Jesus we know, will, will suffer a terrible life situation. But ultimately, God takes these circumstances, as wrong and unpopular as they are, and he is able to massage something good out of them. We know that the Samaritan woman actually does find the peace and the hope she's looking for. She, she actually finds proper manhood, if you will, in a man who will not take advantage of her, Jesus. And from that moment on, she loves Christ and begins to tell others about him. Ultimately, God takes a situation that's incredibly bad and uses it for something very good. And this brings us to the text we're at today. I, I probably could give you another 10 examples from the Bible of people that endure stuff like this. And we all have examples in our heads of people we know that have endured hardship and trial. And when we've gotten to the other side of it, we've seen the good causes of, causes of God in those difficult circumstances. And so it's rather natural that we would sort of begin to refine our focus and, and wrap up today by looking at the Apostle Paul in our text. Because here's a guy who, like John the Baptist and the Samaritan woman, he's suffering in his own way. He is right now sitting in a Philippian jail cell. He's been falsely accused of a crime. He's been thrown into prison. And he is awaiting what he believes is going to be execution. That's the backdrop of this story. He's not sure whether or not he's going to be in jail forever or they're going to lop his head off. And he's physically in chains. This is what we know. He's cuffed to a member of the palace guard to ensure he could not escape. He's a high-profile prisoner. He is at one moment in his life, what we can say next to Jesus, he's, he's the most celebrated person in the New Testament. He is the person that that more than anybody advances the causes of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, except for Jesus. He goes from this platform of, of amazingness to a guy who now has no dignity, 
no privacy. He's got nothing. He's hooked up to another human sitting in a jail cell wondering what his life is going to look like in the next 10 hours or so. This is his physical situation. And for a moment, empathize with Paul. Think about his, his spiritual situation. It's not much better. Think about this. His life's purpose is to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. His life's purpose, evidence in the fact that we're reading from a book called Philippians, a church that he actually started. His life's purpose is to make the name of Jesus known. It's to share the truth and the grace of Christ and to start these local movements that we call churches so that they can perpetuate sharing that goodness and grace through the words and the deeds of God's people. It looks like even this has been hold on his, put on hold in his life. And this is probably an identity point that a lot of us are dealing with right now. For example, if you have been furloughed or laid off or know somebody that's lost a job, it's very likely that the, the evidence of how much you have found your identity in that calling, in that vocational identity, is going to be surfaced. For Paul, he loses, at least at this moment, the platform his life is built upon, his work. And that's why I say just the very nature of being furloughed or being laid off, this is a tremendous hardship for people, not just financially and emotionally, but, but spiritually. When you are disconnected, especially if you love what you do, if you are disconnected from what you do, what you do then what happens is a piece of you is stripped away. And in a perfect world, what would happen is, is we would learn to have that, that emptiness filled by the truth and the grace of Jesus. But oftentimes what happens is we, we continue to look to other things to fulfill us in a way that only Jesus can fulfill us. I call these treacherous idols. They're the things we think will satisfy us in life, and some of them can satisfy us to a degree. But a job or a bank account or a home, all of these things, we, we might function under the guise of, of the appearance of stability. But the truth is that in a moment's notice, all of this can become very unstable. And so these examples show us that in each of these situations, you, you have somebody who literally has, has nothing, who in a very serious way is, is treated poorly by the world that they live in, yet they act and they speak. They live as if they have everything. You see this especially with Paul. Paul sees his opportunity not just as a moment to lament, which he does, but it's also an opportunity now to, as he says, advance the gospel through the chains that are around his, his, his wrists. All of these examples show us that the key to enduring suffering, I'm not saying liking suffering, I'm not saying asking for suffering, the key to enduring it, the key to surviving through it, the key to flourishing in it, is that we learn to train our hearts to see hardship through the lens of God's promises, and not often the short-sighted expectations that we apply to our life circumstances. And by that I mean, uh, it is guaranteed, and I know this because I've talked to a great many of you, there are circumstances in your life, maybe you did lose a job at one point in history, and then after you got over the hump of the suffering, there was a better job at the other end of this. Or maybe there was a very difficult relationship you went through, but, but through time and effort and energy and prayer, that once sort of damaged relationship became something beautiful, became an evidence of the, the healing and forgiveness of God. There can be beauty and hope in suffering because that, that's really the bullseye of what we're trying to train our hearts to understand here. What happens is, is when we have short-sighted expectations about, about suffering, when we can only see right in front of our face, it is very likely to lead us to these places in life that are defined by confusion and despair. And please hear me, I'm not saying that being confused and 
And having despair in your heart during difficult times is a bad thing. There's no false bravado in this. We are given the freedom from God to, to lament. And however it is that we lament on this earth. But my encouragement to you this morning is that as you lament, as I lament, we would lament in hope. Because when we lament, knowing that God is still God, knowing that our ultimate future is in His hands, knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God, there's no virus, there's no vocation, there's no person, there's no circumstance, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. When you believe this deeply, what it does is it gives you the freedom to lament, to grieve the death of whatever it is you have lost in your life. But you get to grieve also with the idea that there can be and will be hope. Because there is stability that God can return to your life. It allows you to see the good that is going on in the midst of any and every circumstance. And that's literally what you see here with Paul. Paul gets to the place where he, he actually sees that there's an, there's an opportunity. There is something very good God can bring out of this very difficult circumstance that he's, he's dealing with. In fact, we, we could even say, much like the arrest, the false arrest and, and crucifixion of Jesus... There was some pretty serious evil motives driving those circumstances. Yet God uses them. He redeems them and brings something incredibly beautiful out of them that glorifies him but, and benefits us. Here, Paul recognizes that he's got an incredible opportunity to, to let people know about the God he's been in prison for. And what's amazing here is that God truly brings something great out of this mess that he's dealing with. People are finding faith. He is, he is literally just starting out of the church in a prison cell. That's where he gets. That's where his lament and hope brings him. Simply put, the good news of Jesus advanced here in Paul's life in ways it never could have because of Paul's trial. Paul gets to do something right now because he sees the hope of Christ in this moment that would not have happened otherwise had he curled up in a ball and just sort of let himself be defeated by the circumstances of life. And it's okay for us to be in the ball at some time. But I want you to know that it is not God's ultimate desire that we, we remain sort of huddled in an emotional ball. At some point, what we want to see happen is that the, the evidence of these promises that we believe, that we claim to believe, the, the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that he's overcome everything in life and death, at some point, that is what needs to start defining the way we lament and have hope. Because remember, on Good Friday... Everybody grieved the death of Christ. But in the day of the resurrection, something happened. There was a, an embryonic hope that began to develop. And they realized death could not hold him in the grave. Nor can circumstances keep us from experiencing the grace of Jesus. They cannot define goodness in our life or take goodness away. Because goodness is not subjective when it comes to God. God's goodness is objective. It transcends every circumstance we have. And it can sustain us during every trial. This is what Paul is telling us. It's what he wants us to know. And it's coming from a direct experience he's having in this prison cell. And so while God can certainly allow, and at times might even bring about trials or hardship in our life, in his, in, in his name, this is a subject we'll deal with in greater detail in the weeks to come, we make a grave mistake. Please don't miss what I'm about to say. We make a grave mistake to say that whenever there is hardship in our life, it is the evidence of a malice, evil-intended, uncaring God who just got bored on a Thursday and sought to torture the world. That is a terrible way to see God. And if the first response we have when things get difficult is, why is God doing this to me? When we begin to move into like blame patterns, it might actually signify something about 
what we do or do not believe about the character and nature of our, of our God. And so these instances, our instances of trial and suffering, they, they give us an opportunity, no matter what the cause, even if it is self-inflicted. Sometimes suffering and hardship is happening in our lives because of things we have done in our lives. It doesn't matter the cause. In His grace, God always redeems and uses hardships to reveal His goodness and His glory to people. We'll talk about cause. Not today, though. Almost always we see things happening in people's lives that would not have been able to happen without the, the endurance of that hardship. And so that's why I like to say, this is a very biblical statement, we read about it with Joseph in the Old Testament, but God ultimately meant them for good. Simply meaning, much like what Romans 8 teaches us, that God can bring incredibly good things out of very tragic circumstances. And in each of these instances, suffering and trial is the catalyst for deepening a person's love and affection for Christ. Their lives remind us that suffering and trial are a natural part of life. They have a purpose in the kingdom of God. This illness that's spreading the globe right now, this virus, we've had others in the last decade. If you just do a basic search, what you'll find is that this is, this is a new suffering because it's the one we're dealing with right now. But suffering and trial like this has existed in the world since the world has been around. These ideas of plagues or broad-scale illness. Suffering, maybe the forms that it takes might look, uh, we might feel like they're different, but they're truly not. It's just our moment to endure them. And if we learn to see these things through God's eyes, if we learn to lament with hope, then there's a great possibility that those hardships really do firm us up in Christ and lead us to a deeper level of love and trust in Him. Because God will always use them to bathe us in His perfect grace and love. And that's why Paul's statement in verse 12 really shows us that, that he had come to understand the balance of lamenting and hope in his life. Because of his closeness to God, he learns to see his situation in a different way. It's like he's saying what at first looked like a really bad situation, and being frank is a bad situation, has turned out to be an unprecedented opportunity to personally rest in Jesus and to share that rest with those who are in my life. It's sort of like I'm going to colloquially quote him. It's sort of like he's saying, I know things are rough right now, but God is with me so I can see the forest from the trees. I know that what I am going through will be for a historical and a personal good in the world and in my life. And that is the great hope embedded in the great men and women who have served God faithfully during trial and hardship. That's what's in there, a, a, a freedom to lament, but ultimately a, a forward thought about what hope means, what it means to lament in the presence and the power of God. And so you see, when you fix your eyes upon Jesus, you really do have the ability to endure life's trials no matter what they are. And Paul had come to this heart-deep conclusion in his life that he was going to make it in that jail cell. And even if he did lose his life, he had an eternity with his Father in heaven forever. There was no circumstance that could take away from Paul what Jesus gave him. And that is the truth that we all should ask God to help us live our lives by. He shows us if, if we are someone who has professed the love for Jesus, that we have to keep our eyes upon him during the parts of our lives that are, that are critically difficult. And I have to step further and say it's immeasurably important that you are deeply connected to other men and women in Jesus, other brothers and sisters in Christ who can help bear those burdens with you. Because to do anything to the contrary is a Christian contradiction to the highest of, the highest of sorts. Because when you live for something other than Jesus, no matter how noble it might seem, no matter what it is, when you live for something that is not Jesus, as if it is Jesus, 
what you will find is that there is always going to be some form of instability or insecurity in that. Jesus is an immovable rock. His promises do not collapse when our lives do. In fact, what we learn from Christ is he's there to hold the aspects of our life up that we can no longer carry. And so as we close this morning, ask yourself, honestly this week, use this as a meditation point. What have you attached yourself to? In, in your lives right now, what, what is it you, maybe it's nothing, maybe you are a person who's, who really believes this and, and understands this, and that's encouraging, I'm, I don't doubt that, I love our people, and there are a great many people who are deeply mature in Jesus. If you are this person, then your job is to disciple somebody who is struggling in this area, but if you are the person who has attached your hope, maybe to something that is not Jesus, or, or maybe you're, you looked to something for the past seven or eight years that you really thought was super stable but turned out to be very fragile based on the current circumstances of life, ask God to show you why it is important that your ultimate hope and faith not be in those circumstances but in Him. And when it comes to seeing that God can bring good out of the circumstances in your life, even the ones we are all dealing with now, what you know is that you can lament with freedom but hope that there is a future, no matter what you're going through. So as I leave you each week in our teachings, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you in this very moment about what you understand regarding hardship, what you're currently enduring, how you're currently enduring hardship, and what is it that you will do about it? Before we wrap up this morning, take a space to really prepare your mind and your heart to think about where your trials are this week and how God can bring good out of them. Pray with me if you would. Father in heaven, we do thank you for, uh, my goodness, for a, a book, the scripture, packed with stories of imperfect people who did great things for you. Imperfect people, God, who did suffer. Imperfect people, Father, who did find joy in you. And, and, and in their life circumstances, what we can do is, is look to these things, to these eternal and timeless truths, and we can derive strength and hope from them. And so I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take the truth of just the Apostle Paul that we looked at today, how he was able to, to endure and overcome a very difficult circumstance in life. I pray that you would let us know that the power to do that is not written in some ancient text that we no longer have access to. It's actually written in a present reality. Those words are your truth, and that truth can be applied to our hearts. And so we pray, Father, now in these weeks that come for your Holy Spirit, God, to truly etch this truth into the tablets of our hearts and let us live by nothing less than them. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, before we go this morning, a couple of things that I, I want to mention to you. And this is what we would have normally done if we were in our movie theater right now. If you have questions about what we just talked about, if you have objections to the things that I have mentioned, if you have other questions about suffering, if you are enduring trial or suffering yourself, if you have a need or you need to be prayed for, if there is a way that we can serve you this week, please let us know that. And there are a number of ways you can do that by contacting our office. You can phone us. You can send us an email. Uh, most of you have my personal contact information. You can just text me. Do, do something positive this week. If there is a step God is asking you to take when it comes to this truth, please don't live in isolation this week. Seek the care of somebody who cares about you and take your next step with Jesus. And if we or our staff can serve you in doing that, uh, let us know and we will do our best to serve you this week. I also want to thank you all uh, for your continued uh, gen generosity. Our church for the, for the better part of 10 years has been able to financially sustain itself. And, and I thank you, all of you, for the continued generosity that you show our church. 
If you have questions about how to give, uh, if you're not e-giving, which the majority of you are, uh, you can do that online. Uh, those details will be posted here today. You can also mail your offerings into our, our office. But either way, I thank you for your committed faithfulness. And I want to remind you, as I do each week, that our generosity includes the work of the Ministry of Restoration, but cannot be limited to that. There are going to be opportunities you have to serve your neighbor in need when, when this time ends. And so make sure that generosity is defined by a capital G in your life, amongst our church family and amongst the, the places, the spheres of influence that God has put you in, in your own world. Now, this morning, I'll conclude with our, our traditional benediction. I know the world is crazy, a little bit crazy right now, and stay tuned to, uh, to your staff and your leadership here. We will each week continue to let you know what the, what the nature of Sundays look like. Each of you can connect with a community group. Please consider that. Uh, zooming into one of our groups this week, if you have questions about doing that, I want to encourage you to really plug in. Don't let your faith be reduced to a 60-minute interval on Sunday morning. Engage the people of God so that you can more deeply know the God of those people. This week as you go, I pray that where there is lament, God would turn it into hope. And as you go, Father in heaven and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. Stay well. Amen.